This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, I am not, I'm not Jewish, but I'm frequently mistaken for someone that is Jewish, and uh, it's just as well for me. It's fine with me. I'm a big lover of uh, Jewish culture, Jewish comedy, Jewish cinema, uh, Jewish history. And I mean, you talk thousands and thousands of years of Jewish history. You could spend the rest of your life studying the history of the Jews and still not cover everything. So I, I never really mind it. I also even like Jewish cuisine, which even a lot of Jewish folks don't like. Uh, you give me a uh, some good gefilte fish with some horseradish any day of the week. And I am enjoying myself. Now, when it comes to Jewish wine, that's another matter. We'll put that, we'll save that discussion for another day. But, uh, and my son is technically Jewish, although he's not a practicing Jew. He is, uh, if you go by his lineage and the rules of Judaism, he is technically Jewish, although he doesn't really practice much of anything. He doesn't even formulate speech yet. He does practice spitting up quite a bit. That's really the extent of his practicing. But, I mention this because those of you that are Jewish know that um, if you've ever attended a Passover Seder, or even those of you that aren't Jewish that have attended a Passover Seder, you know that the youngest capable child at that Passover Seder has to answer, or at least, uh, I, I, yeah, I think they answer or at least ask the four questions. What is one of the four questions why is tonight different from all other nights? Well, that is a question that uh, I take great pride in answering tonight or this morning, whatever the perspe- whatever your perspective happens to be, because we have one of our most uh, popular guests, personal favorite guests on this program. He is a brilliant man who has an incredible voice, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy, space and a host of other issues. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back once again, the one and only Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Hello there, Steve. And good morning, Frank. Great to be back for another episode here on Talk Radio 77, WABC. Well, it, we're honored that uh, you're always so generous with your time and always make yourself available at these at these crazy hours, which even in Arizona, I realize it's uh, it's a little late. You make our show better by your constant uh, or your regular contributions to it. Steve, well, thank you. Steve, um, look, the whole world is fixated on this Russia-Ukraine situation, deservedly yes. so. I mean, it's a very a very difficult situation to watch. But I interviewed an astronaut and a naval commander recently, right before this war broke out, and one of the things yes. that we spoke about, one of the things that he brought up, 
is America's partnership with the Russians in the space program. And you have not only the International Space Station, but you have all of these other areas where America partners with Russia when it comes to space travel. Now, now that we're seeing Russia sort of become an international pariah, everybody from uh, McDonald's to FIFA is sort of uh, deleting right. Russia from their map. Where does that leave us with the space program, and what's the future of America's um, uh, continuing cooperation with Russia on the space program? Well, Frank, I'll answer it this way, and it's always straight up and and full of information here. I think it's interesting. The right stuff are astronauts, men and women, who go to space. And even though the habitation modules on the International Space Station, a lot of it is part of Russia, and a lot of it is part of the United States, and let's say other nations that are on this you know, generous uh, group in space that's working toward peace in space. But what's interesting is, I think it really goes back to the Russians again. Dmitry Rogozin, who's the head of Roscosmos, you know, the Russian equivalent of, let's say, NASA, their space agency, he and others for the longest time have been making these ridiculous statements, again, like Putin with the threat of nuclear war. I mean, God help us if that ever came about, of course, a very serious problem. But I think the interesting part of this is, you know, the cosmonauts and the American astronauts and others on board, that's why I say the right stuff, because they're not going to start fistfights on board there. They're too smart for that. They understand that space should be a place that's at least neutral. But unfortunately, down on the ground, there's a lot of hell going on here. So it's kind of interesting. The other day, there were some tweets back and forth. I, I think that some of the Russians took off the American flag off of a couple of Russian joint U.S. ventures in space, the rockets to launch. But I don't know. I'm just hoping that uh, naturally the simple answer is cooler heads need to prevail. That's what we hope for. But uh, the, the truth of the matter is the Russians were saying this. This is what uh, Dmitry Rogozin was saying, that he would theoretically have the ability to recommend that they bring down the space station. Well, there is some truth not to scare people and not to scare the cosmonauts and astronauts. They understand all this. But the Russia is responsible for the propulsion systems on board there. Mm. No, they don't have the ability to run into the Russian module and just seemingly pull these levers. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And, um, and the United States and other nations that are in there, they have their responsible for, let's say, the, the heating, the plumbing systems, the computers and such. But I don't know, Frank, it's uh, pretty scary times out there. But I'm, I'm giving credit to the right stuff. And that's what I think astronauts, men and women are made of. So in the for the time being, at least in the short term, there's probably no noticeable impact on the American and Russian joint space operations? I don't think so. And like I said, I think that the cooler heads prevail up there. And I think even if there was given a direct order, I mean, it's not a military platform in space. I think things are pretty much calm in the sense that, hey, they know down there about 260 miles below where they're orbiting, some places on the Earth, things are not too tranquil right now. But there could be, as we say in the future, though, I think there's another thing, not to sound alarmist ever here on this show, but always to be truthful. I think the real concern is what happens when, let's say, Russia, if it continues to do this escalation and some of this, you know, jingoistic stuff on the side of wanting to, you know, wipe everybody out on the Earth if we don't think – if they don't agree with them going into uh, the Ukraine. I think the problem is, in my humble opinion – the hacking of satellites, or mm. if Russia were to shoot down, because remember this, we talked about it last time, their ability, as other nations on the Earth, I'm sure the Chinese have it, we have ASAT capability, if they were to fire at, let's say, one of our uh, 
NRO, National Reconnaissance uh, Office Spacecraft, or Defense Intelligence Agency, that would start lots of trouble. But there's also been reports, and I can't confirm them, you know, don't believe everything I read on the Internet, that we've even gotten into some of their satellites to not disable them, but to uh, cause them what we call static. So uh, that's the other problem. Space warfare, I think, sadly, is a uh, an open book at well, this point. I think, and by the way, we're, we're going to be joined by Dr. Sky for the hour. If you have questions about anything related to space, the space program, astronomy, um, aviation, anything of that nature, now's the time, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. The phone lines tend to um, get crowded pretty quickly, so I would start dialing now if you're curious about anything, whether we end up covering it or not. I think to your point that space yeah. warfare – that uh, really underscores the importance of what was implemented under the Trump administration of the Space Force. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think there's many purposes for Space Force. Thank goodness President Trump, you know, had this envision, had this dream, and it was then completed, not just from a dream state, but to reality. You know, there's other things. We can have peaceful cooperation in space. We can also do more of cargo ships to space, like future space stations, and have a pathway to space with uh, an organized force as they call it, the Space Force. And also, like we said, let's pray to God that there's no space warfare. But unless people are living in a you know super deep lead mine, myself <laughs> included, I think, yes, this is going to be the next platform. And we've seen some egregious things by many nations around the Earth. Chinese uh, recently, within years, have shot uh, out of space one of their own you know satellites that they wanted to see what would happen, creating a horrible uh, debris field, like in the movie gravity uh, with Sandra Bullock and the other big actor there. But the truth is, Frank, uh, you know, this is something that I think uh, is great that we do have a space force. And I think it's going to go on to exploration of the moon. And remember, we're going to see the first female astronauts from America and other nations be the first females to go to the surface of the moon. Mm. And I think it's also going to be by a tight, uh, you know, not just NASA, but the Space Force will also be responsible for transporting people back and forth to the moon for serious research and other issues. Now, there's a lot of reasons with all the reasons there are to shake your head in frustration or disgust about oh, what's yeah. happening here on Earth. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the future of space Most travel. Most definitely. And we'd love to be on that side more so. No doubt about it. Now, um, just going back to this Russia-Ukraine situation, mm -hmm. is it true that the largest aircraft in the world has actually been destroyed in Ukraine as part of this war? What happened? Well, here's the scoop I'll get to other people that I know around the world, like many of them out there, like many people have friends. What the story is, is this. The largest jet aircraft in the world, a cargo jet that was developed by the Antonov Design Bureau. This is very interesting. In the Ukraine, Antonov has a series of amazing military aircraft for Russia and Ukraine. But the aircraft simply was known as the Antonov 225, and it's known as the Maria. That's the name. So what we found out here, apparently at the airport that's very close to Kiev, that Russian forces came in and started to you know, fire rockets, missiles, and ground forces came in. And supposedly this aircraft was destroyed because it really had no chance to move out. It was under uh, repair because it's such an amazing aircraft. And think about this, folks. The wingspan is 290 feet, so that's what, short about 10 feet of a football field. And it has six incredible jet engines that fire up on this. And if people want to learn more about this, one of my articles at the KTAR.com blog that I have, Dr. Sky, is all the details about this aircraft for aviation fans out there. It's the world's heaviest airplane. 
It has this ability to lift so much, and it was used for humanitarian reasons around the world, like in Haiti to supply uh, you know people that are in need, dire need, uh, some you know medicines, food, and et cetera, and water. But sadly, I can't absolutely confirm this, and all the sources that I've you know spoken with via email, not by phone, say that the aircraft seems to be destroyed uh, at this point or severely damaged. Mm, no, that is sad. Um, lastly, on the Ukraine front, unless people have questions at 800-848-9222, it was about um, a little more, uh, almost a week and a half ago, where our producer, Molly, came to me saying, oh, there's this incredible Ukrainian pilot that shot down six <laughs> Russian planes right. over Kiev. And uh, she said, I'm trying to work on confirming it. And I... It didn't mention it because I was concerned that it may not be true. But since then, since that uh, in interaction that Molly and I had off the air, the legend or the myth of what some people are calling the ghost of Kiev or yes. the panther of Kharkiv or uh, the gray wolf has yes. only grown. Um, let me ask you, based on what we know, available reports and your own independent confirmations of this stuff, is the ghost of Kiev real, this Ukrainian flying ace that can't stop shooting down Russian jets? Well, Frank, I'd love to tell everybody yes, and I'm cheering on for that kind of concept. But I'm thinking, again, checking sources that I know in the aviation world, and this is via email, not uh, going and talking to them. I don't speak fluent Russian or Ukrainian. But we can say this much. If indeed this is not true, it's a great psychological thing for the people of the Ukraine. But what it's all about is about this particular pilot, the ghost of Kiev, who has an actual name, I don't have it in front of me, and the gray wolf, allegedly shot down during the first few days of confrontation six enemy Russian jets, and they go into great detail in talking about what it is. But again, I can't prove this, but some on the Internet are saying that the footage that they show is actually footage from a combat simulation game that mm -hmm. many people who are in that gaming world call digital com combat simulation world and that it may not be necessarily true. But it's an interesting story. I'm going to continue to check it out. And I think what we're finding out is, you know, it's amazing if it's true because they need all the help they can get. And, wow, imagine that. Here's one person who's apparently the pilot itself. And I'm trying to see if I can actually find this name here just to give people some research. Apparently, it's a Ukrainian pilot known as Vladimir Abdunov. And allegedly, and I'm just reading this from something that someone sent me over from the Ukraine, he allegedly downed two Su-35s, fairly sophisticated Russian jet fighters, two Su-25s, which, by the way, in case people are not familiar, that's their equivalent of our A-10. And if anybody knows what the A-10 is, and we could go on for hours about it, we do a lot in the aviation world, it's called a titanium tub, the A-10. They should build more of them, in my opinion, because not only does it have this rotary cannon in the front, but it shoots 30-millimeter shells out of that thing. And if you ever stood next to one of these things, some of them have depleted or DU, depleted uranium. These things knock telephone poles out of the ground. And we witnessed by seeing an air show, a special demonstration down at the Barry Goldwater you know, range, mm. a live fire exercise with that aircraft. But the one that the SU, the one SU-25 is kind of their version of that, certainly in my opinion, aviation world, not as capable. They also alleged that he shot down one SU-27, another sophisticated Russian jet fighter, at least on paper. And then one MiG-29, which is common throughout some of the NATO countries, like Poland, is allegedly going to be sending those airplanes over to the Ukrainians, but not letting Polish pilots fly it to violate this no-fly zone. 
But this is fascinating stuff if it's true. So the name out there, and I don't have, I don't have a total confirmation, Vladimir Abdunov allegedly shooting down. And the MiG-29 that he has, if people look at it on the Internet, at least the images that we're seeing, is the really coolest-looking digital camo MiG-29 I've ever seen. That's a cool-looking airplane. Yeah, and even the former president, Poroshenko, tweeted a photo uh, that he said was this pilot, which uh, turned out yeah. to be inaccurate. It was from two right. years previously or three years previously when a pilot was uh, trying on a helmet. That's the problem with uh, the social media era is that it's easy to get information, and it's easy <laughs> to get information quickly. Unfortunately, we're not always sure how much of it is is accurate. Uh, we're talking with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We'll take all your space questions at 800 848 9222, that's 800-848-WABC. We have three open lines. Steve, before we uh, take calls, you and I, a couple of months ago, I guess, we spoke about the possibility of a comet or an asteroid or a meteor hurtling towards the Earth and ending life on the planet as we know it, just like the dinosaurs had to contend with. And we talked about some of the good disaster movies that depict scenes like that, Meteor and uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon. My wife and I over the weekend saw the the film Don't Look Up with Leonardo DiCaprio, which is oh, uh, nominated right. for an Oscar, and it deals with some of the same things. I'm curious if you've seen it and if you've had, if you had what your impressions of it were. Well, always honest with your listeners, I have this amazing little computer system here, like many people have in their home, that can show these movies. And every time I try to see it, again, I'm paying for this, I'm not hacking it, I have not seen it. But from what I've read, the reviews, at one of the local theaters, we were going to do an actual, you know, student, not student, but a participation where we have a talk back, you know, after the, about the movie. But all I can say is the bottom line, you saw it. If I'm correct, it's that Leonardo DiCaprio is a, you know, early in his career astronomer and with others, and they're kind of dismissing this real threat and not taking it very seriously. Yeah, well, I mean, it's clearly it's a comedy. It's sort of an allegory for science denial. And I I just I thought it was interesting. When you do see it, I'd be curious about your review. I'd be happy to comment. What what are some of the films that you do for those uh, cinematic talkbacks that you do? Well, one of the things we did years ago, a few years ago, not that far back in time, and we still do them, was a series that the History Channel had on Project Blue Book. And mm. amazing, because during my time, and this goes back to our days in New Jersey, we were doing radio at a local you know, college radio station there in Teaneck, New Jersey. It was uh, you know, some, some, kind, some time ago. But one of the movies, one of the things that we had on there, we tried to get the very best guess, and this is just when you're in your college years. So I had the opportunity to talk to J. Allen Hynek, who happens to make a guest appearance, a cameo appearance in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And why I mention that is all of the research that had gone on about all the different UFO sightings, I thought that History Channel series was absolutely wonderful. I mean, they played out so many of the greatest hits of the cold Mm. UFO encounters. And we did that uh, in a large theater. The the biggest one we did here at one of the, uh, we call them the draft house theaters here. You know, you can eat in the theater and drink adult beverages. It's kind of cool environment. And we put people up on like some of the actors from these different movies up on a Zoom screen, like an 80 footer, and we do a talk back. But the most phenomenal one, and I think it's one that I'm sure and hope everybody out there in Radio Land has a chance or had a chance to see, is Kubrick's epic 2001 A Space Odyssey. We had the opportunity to talk to both of the good actors in that movie. But to me, uh, Frank, you know, movies like that we continue to talk about, and obviously here on this radio show to uh, get the message out about the study of these wonderful subjects. And seriously, I know it sounds a little 
you know, different change of venue here, but to take maybe our minds off of some of the craziness that's going on in the world, absolutely, the chance to enjoy nature and uh, kind of calm down in a way that doesn't really cost you too much of anything other than look outside and uh, try to look up and relax. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with your calls for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. He's going to tell you what you can see in the night sky these days and what you should be looking for. And uh, we'll, we'll have a, a variety of other subjects that we're going to cover in the next uh, in the next hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. WABC. side of midnight we're talking stars sky space you name it with the man who knows it all steve cates aka dr sky uh, you can learn more about what he's observing what he's seeing what he's writing about what he finds interesting by checking out the dr sky blog at ktar.com that's ktar.com we're very lucky uh, to have him as a regular contributor to this program. All right, uh, I've gone on and on for uh, long enough. I'll give you an opportunity to pick Steve's brain. Uh, let's begin with Bob in Westchester. Hello, Bob. Yeah, hi, Frank. Hi, Bob. Good morning. What, Good morning what's on Bob. your mind, Frank? Bob? Uh, I have a question for the doctor. Uh, recently, I was talking to a Chinese student from China who was visiting the United States. And he believes that his people who are going to try to get to the moon first to establish a military base to hold this country hostage. Is that possible? Well, Bob, good morning again. I don't know if it's uh, the reality, but I can tell you this. They have a very aggressive space program, and you have to give them credit technologically. We may not agree with communism, but here on this particular radio show, I'll tell you, Bob, that – for any country to soft land a spacecraft on the far side of the moon and do that, nobody's ever done that before. There is, in my opinion, a race, Bob, to go to the moon, at least to do some habitation, you know, build modules like some kind of a place where you can stay other than landing there, collecting rocks and going back. I'm hoping that's not true, but uh, your Chinese person that's, that told you that, there may be some credibility to that, but I'm going to have to research that much more, folks, because all I can tell you is let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Thanks, Bob. 800-848-WABC. Troy is in Mount Lakes, New Jersey. Hello, Troy. Yeah. Hi, Frank. Dr. Sky. Good morning, Troy. Yes, thanks. Uh, yeah, so, you know, hearing uh, uh, your, your uh, title there, Dr. Sky, reminds me of that old TV show, Sky, King, and Penny. You know, maybe you should have a sidekick named Penny. Dr. That's Sky an idea. Penny. That is really cool, Troy, because on the shows that we do out here, and again, 
KTAR yeah. is the big news station out here. In that show, I always used the, the promo for that. Out of the Western sky came Sky King. And yeah. how about this, Bob? Yeah. And, and how about this, Troy and Frank? A person a long time ago heard this on the radio, and he gave me, I didn't ask for this, the entire series, some of which have, had never been seen you know, in years, of the entire Sky King uh, episode. And I think he was flying. I hope I'm right. I think it was a Cessna 310 plane. But that was filmed was out a- in California, but it was supposed to be about Arizona, too. Yeah. I thought it was like a twin beach or something like that. Uh, I tell you, I, I should look it up. It was such a cool show that uh, we had to memorialize yeah. it. But thanks for uh, offering up. Well, I do have a question, money. but I, I yes. do have a question now. Yes, Troy. Okay. So um, I want to ask a question about satel- uh, how many satellites uh, are there, and are they constantly doing ground uh, imaging? And is there a giant uh, database of, of uh satellite uh, ground imaging and could I and is it possible now to access some database somewhere to for a location uh, at a time a date and a location and get uh, satellite imaging from that database yeah Troy very interesting question my suggestion is and I'm not sure I'm not current on this but Landsat if you look it up on the web I think you'll be able to see archival images Obviously, our American and other nations' so-called spy satellites are not going to give you that avail. But I'm not sure. I'll have to do some research on this. Like I always say on this radio show, right, Frank? If I'm not Mm -hmm. sure, I'm always going to tell you the truth. But Landsat has always been something. I know that people were using that for very, very interesting purposes. Like if they were looking to build homes or large, you know, construction projects, they would actually use that satellite imagery to get some better topographical, you know, pictures of the ground. So I suggest Landsat, uh-huh. but the spy satellites Landsat. are very interesting. Landsat, and if you yeah. look at some of the spy satellite images, wouldn't that be great, guys? If you could actually see from space, <laughs> allegedly, you could read what a newspaper, if people still read those, <laughs> or look at a book from the orbital altitude of over what two hundred so miles in space. That's really cool technology. I want to talk to those guys and gals about the technology they're using to optical image and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's for sure. So we uh, there was a big story about this uh, rogue rocket part mm-hmm. that uh, was uh, crashing into the moon. And uh, the, originally it was thought to belong to Elon Musk's SpaceX. Right. And then uh, they said, no, 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 it's not from SpaceX. It's from China. China said, no, 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 it's not ours. Uh, Now, apparently, the media reported that it's uh, an old rocket part from a lunar mission dating back about eight years ago. And the astronomer Bill Gray claimed that it is Chinese. What exactly is this this rogue rocket part? Did it, in fact, crash into the moon? And do we know if it was, in fact, Chinese? Well, they're very good questions, Frank. And I think the best information is always this. Apparently, at 7.25 a.m. on this particular, what, it was yesterday, I think, that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. because I'm on different time here, this alleged Chinese rocket body slammed into the moon, creating a 65-foot-in-diameter crater. But I think we're waiting for more, you know, confirmation of this, because the best of all the imaging spacecraft, hey, I got to give a plug to Arizona State University here, and they didn't pay me for this one, I can assure you. They have a spacecraft, and everybody should go to their website. Just look up Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And Mark Robinson, a person I know over there, he's the director of this. My gosh, they have the most incredible imaging from this thing that's probably the size of maybe a small SUV, and even smaller, maybe a little subcompact car. 
This little spacecraft has been running around and imaging the surface of the moon from an altitude maybe at times of about 20 miles or less. And I think, I don't know for sure, again, I'm always going to tell you folks the truth, I think there's, they're either going to get images or they have an image and they think that there's a 65-foot wild crater. Mm. But that's not unusual. Other things have hit the surface of the moon during the Apollo era. One of the Saturn IV booster rockets was intentionally slammed into the moon, a number of these were, to test the lunar surface uh, you know, experiment they had on the moon to check the seismology, like lunar, lunar quakes, you know, moon quakes. And recently, we were up, I think I talked about this one one of the shows with you, Frank. We were up a long time ago on TV here in Phoenix following something called L-Cross. Just look up L-C-R-O-S-S. It was a spacecraft intentionally slammed into one of the South Pole craters on the moon, where allegedly there is water ice. Remember I said the coldest place in the solar system is actually the southern or, or the poles of the moon. And they slammed this body in there. We had telescopes to see if we could see any residual, but no, we couldn't. But apparently some water vapor from that ice on the surface, there was actually water detected on the surface of the moon. So the moon is not uncommon to getting slammed, not only by these spacecraft, but look at the surface of the moon with the craters by much larger bodies Mm. over time. Space junk is getting to be a pretty big problem for everybody now, isn't it? It sure is. And, you know, there's going to be that billiard ball concept that they talk about. It's this effect where when one spacecraft may hit another and another one bounces off another one like billiard balls on a table, but many more on the mega scale, space is becoming, especially in lower Earth orbit. And I, you know, we, we talk about SpaceX. I have friends of mine, Frank, and I'm sure that you do that think, oh, SpaceX is awesome. I think they are. Then you have others that say, ah, they're putting up so many of these spacecraft and, you know, it's all for this profit and all these things. But the bottom line is this. There must be something done in space. There needs to be some kind of highway rules and regulations maybe a speed limit, kidding, of course, where you have certain paths where spacecraft can go. But maybe I'm a little too optimistic if we all can't get along on the ground down here. Uh, how are we, we going to do that in the highway and in the heavens? Uh, that, uh, that's a great question, one that I don't have an answer to. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in Carteret. Hello, Tom. Uh, yes, good morning, Frank. Uh, my question is uh, about the microwave technology which has been used to harm uh, diplomats in the United States and Cuba. And I believe you're talking happened, about the so-called uh, Havana syndrome. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And the extent that weapons are going to be used in war, uh, say, in the future, because I, I believe this nuclear weapons is, you know, very important and everything. But space seems to be the, the way to go as far as if you're really going to destroy something. And, and that's just my opinion. I'm a, I'm a neophyte yes. at this. But especially the microwave technology, mm-hmm. does that have anything to do with space, or is that on the ground that they're harming uh, all of these people? Well, I'll go from one, one edge to the other of the spectrum here. And, Tom, good morning. Here's my best response on this. I spend a lot of time in the law enforcement world. I know that may shock everybody out there. We could talk about that some other time. But one of the reasons I'm mentioning this There were devices that friends of ours in different companies sold, which were these devices that looked like a large, you know, stop sign. And they were basically acoustic weapons that if you just turned the thing on, you've all heard a white noise. I stood at the other end of a convention center and this thing was all the way there and the guy would sweep it across. And as soon as it got toward me, the point of focus, like you'd have like a satellite dish antenna, it just resonated so badly in my head. But going back to space, These type of devices, I think, are already on board a lot of spacecraft. And I don't know this because I'm not privy to any top secret clearances, but I would imagine, Tom, that this type of technology, acoustic wave technology, 
And there's also some bizarre theories, Frank, too. This is important, Tom, too, that some people believe, not necessarily me, that a, large, a, lot, of, a lot of the fires that you've seen on the Earth were actually produced by superheated microwaves from space as a weapon from space that could actually deploy it on the ground to start fires. But that gets into what? A conspiracy side that I'm really not qualified to go beyond that. I'm just re- repeating what I've read. And maybe not all of it's accurate. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Steve, we we've talked a little bit about eclipses in the past. Any upcoming solar eclipses that people can look forward to seeing? Well, Frank, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a little bit sentimental to me and not to spend too much time on it. My first total solar eclipse when living in New Jersey, my father, God rest his soul, drove me down. And this was kind of a surprise thing. I always wanted to see a total solar eclipse. Who wouldn't? So when I was 14. Going back a long time ago, that's 52 years ago, March 7th, 1970, we drove down to Florida. It was a three-day trip along Interstate 95, and I think we stopped at that place called South of the Border in South Carolina, like everybody did. But we got to a place called Perry, Florida, and I was so excited. I had my little camera, you know, one of those little brownie little photograph cameras that you had film in. And guess what? It, was, it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it got dark, and it got dark. But I was hooked on this ever since. But... In memorial to my dad and and that eclipse trip, here we go, Frank, with what's coming up here. And this is interesting. In this year around the world, we have a partial solar eclipse April 30th, nothing that we'll see in this listening area. May 15th, a total lunar eclipse. We will get to see that. October the 25th, a partial solar eclipse. Again, that one takes place literally over Central Europe and actually over the Ukraine. And then November 7th, a total lunar eclipse. But here we go with the real best stuff for North America. Folks, I'll say this twice because you may want to write it down. On Saturday, October 14th, 2023, Saturday, October 14th, 2023, an annual eclipse of the sun that will take place. What's that? Take a nickel on the table and place a dime next to it. Put the dime on top of the nickel. That outer edge of the, of the nickel is how much of the sun would shine. So it's not safe to stare at, but like a Johnny Cash song, the ring of fire, that's what you see. And this will take place in parts of the Northwest, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. But if I was planting my feet on the ground and could travel, I'd go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, because it literally comes right downtown, and it lasts for about four minutes. But hold on, folks. It gets better, right, Frank? 177 days later, on April the 8th, 2024, April the 8th, 2024, the next in a series of great American total solar eclipses takes place. This is the big one. You'll see it in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio, New York State, downtown Buffalo. How about that? Downtown Cleveland and all through New England gets to see four minutes and so in Texas. We're going to be down there, probably in Dealey Plaza. We talked about that, that very sacred location. Right down in the middle of the day, this will happen. But here we go. If you missed that, ready for this, Frank? August 12, 2045, over much of the southwest and central U.S., but I saved the best for last. Here we go. This is way in the future. On May 1st, 2079, New York City gets to see a sunrise total solar eclipse that lasts for two minutes. So what would happen if you stood on top of, let's say, the Empire State Building and obviously had a clear view to the sky as the sun would rise? If the skies were clear, you'd have to pray for that in, what, 2079, you would see the sun rising in totality the strangest thing probably anybody's ever seen, and that one occurs in New York City. Mm. It starts there. Isn't that amazing? I'm marking my calendar. 
800-848-WABC. Chris is calling from Silver Springs, Maryland. Hello, Chris. Yeah, just uh, there was a question earlier about getting uh, historical photographs from space. If you go to the USGS, uh, U.S. Geological Survey out in Reston, they have a database you can go through. I've been I've been a little bit disappointed in their website, but okay. you can uh, you can get maps, you can get photographs, and they'll say whether it's from a plane or from a satellite. And uh, a lot of people do it just as gifts for somebody who bought a house. They'll they'll get a picture from like twenty years or earlier, uh, you know, to give to someone. So that well, Chris, that's a suggestion for that. No, thank you, morning, Chris, and thank you for the help. We all need that. You bet. Okay. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, 800-848-WABC. I'm going to take one quick break, and then we'll continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. You are the sunshine of my life That's why I'll always be around You are the apple of my eye Forever you'll stay in my heart I feel like this is the beginning One million years If I thought our love was ending I'd find myself drowning in my own tears You are the sunshine of my life That's why I'll always be around The The great Frank Sinatra, one of the all-time greats. We're talking with one of the all-time greats today, uh, the great Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in both astronomy and space in general. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog over at KTAR.com. That's KTAR.com. Steve, uh, what can we see in our March skies? Uh, we've had some pretty good weather in our area over the weekend, although there's yeah. talk of uh, snow tomorrow, which is going to be interesting. But it's been some clear skies as of uh, as of late. Coming up in the next few weeks, what will people be able to see in our area with the naked eye, with binoculars, with a telescope? Well, Frank, let the fun begin, because this is the naked eye part of it, which you don't need the telescope. Let's begin with sightings of the space station, International Space Station. Thursday morning, March the 10th, at 5.03 a.m., early enough, but your show's there. Nearly overhead, moving to the southeastern part of the sky. Now, this is bright. This would be almost as bright as the planet Venus, and it's moving in the direction of the planet Venus. And where would that be? That would be rising into the east. That's the big, brilliant object that you see just before the sunrise. And if you miss that, March 11th, Friday, also bright, just a little shade, little tad less in brilliance. You're looking at 5.05 a.m., again, looking into the southeast sky. You won't be able to see, you'll be able to see this object with the naked eye near the planet Venus moving in that direction. 
And this is amazing because you're looking at something that's upwards of about 268 miles above the Earth. But also in talking about the other things that we can see in the sky, we talk about the moon, Earth's nearest neighbor. We find the moon's now a crescent. It's beautiful in the sky, a waxing crescent. So if you have binoculars or telescopes, that shadow relief is there. In my opinion, best on the 10th because that's first quarter moon. That's when the moon is illuminated. You see half of it illuminated and half of it in the so-called Earth shine. But the shadow relief is phenomenal there. The full moon then, the moon waxes, and it continues to move on to the full worm moon on the 18th. And the vernal equinox taking place on the 20th, just what, less than two weeks away. We all need that warmth of the sun. We're getting it a little bit here in Phoenix, but uh, a little too early in my opinion. So in the morning sky, the planet Venus. And also I wanted to mention a couple of spacecraft that are breaking records right now, Frank. This is interesting. A long time ago... In another far-off galaxy, back in 1977, the Voyager 1 was launched out into space. It's still operating, and right now it's 14 billion, yes, 14 billion miles away from the Earth. When the people at the NASA send a signal to it, get a load of this, at the speed of light, it takes 18 hours just to tell the camera to do this or to do that, and that's incredible. Still working after all those years, and then the New Horizons spacecraft the one with my mentor, Dr. Tombaugh, the discoverer of Pluto from my days in school, his spacecraft, as I call it, with his ashes on it and other people's names on a wow. CD, that is about 53 astronomical units, and an astronomical unit is the distance of the Earth to the sun. That's about, nine, oh, that's about oh my goodness, 4.9 billion miles away, and it takes seven and a half hours just to tell the thing to wake up and do something. So they're still in communication with these spacecraft. Mm. That is neat. 800-848-WABC. Patricia is in Nanuet. Hello, Patricia. Hello. How are you tonight? We're hanging in there. I am calling to ask, between all of the things that we send up in space and all of the things that we leave there, how much is affecting the climate change? Well, Patricia, good morning to you. It's really not affecting the climate here on this planet. I mean, up and above the atmosphere. When these spacecraft do deorbit, very simply, majority of them burn up, and that's been the track record of most of them. Occasionally, you'll get a sensational news story or a real news story where something comes through the atmosphere and actually hits the ground. But in all due respect, no, it, in my opinion, doesn't have anything to do with climate change because these objects, even though they're in space, they're still not as big as many people think. Even the space station, if we look at it as being bigger than a football field, is still small. By, at least by celestial standards. Thank you, Patricia. In terms of um, what we're seeing in space, one of the uh, things that got a lot of attention, deservedly so, was this James Webb telescope. And uh, we've, been, we've been hearing about some of the images that may be transmitted back from this James Webb telescope. Apparently, it's, it's going to explore an exoplanet system. Uh, first, Steve, remind us, if you would, what an exoplanet is. And second, uh, what exactly is the James Webb Telescope doing when it comes to exoplanet exploration? Great question. And here's exoplanet as a definition. It's an extrasolar planetary object discovered around another star. I mean, for the longest time, we all look at our planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, blah, 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 all the way out to now Neptune and poor little Pluto as a dwarf. But these are discoveries that were made back in 1995, the first of the exoplanetary objects, which, by the way, I consider to be one of the most amazing milestones in astronomy because they never photographed these objects. They're done by a complex series of things. When they, when they see an object allegedly go in front of a star, there's a light curve dip, 
and they can measure this, and it's amazing how they can do it. So this one, 51 Pegasi, was the first one of exoplanets to be discovered. But now with James Webb, they've got the calibration going on an obscure star out there with all the 18 you know, mirrors. They all focused into one. That was the test. But what they're going to do, this is fascinating, Frank, and everybody listening. There's a star system about 40 light years away in the constellation of Aquarius called the TRAPPIST-1 system, and it's named after a special science project. They've allegedly, and I say this, have identified seven exoplanetary objects, some of them larger than the Earth, all around this Mm. little tiny red dwarfish type of star, which is only 9% the mass of our sun. But what's interesting is if any of those seven would be in that habitable zone, which they say they are, Maybe, just maybe, that might be one of the more amazing locations to look for the possibility of life. I didn't say, you know, alien creatures like reptilians, but maybe some sort of life in an atmosphere-type-like planet. But what's interesting about this, let's now journey in the mind's eye as radios the theater of the mind. If we could go to the Trappist system and let's land on one of those Trappist planets, the night sky, according to reliable sources, would be as bright as the full moon would be at night, But, Frank, you would see, and everybody listening, all the other six planetary objects in the sky at the same time because they're relatively close. That, to me, is very Star Wars-ish, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. 800-848-WABC. Al is here in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Uh, I'm happy you have uh, the best guests that you have on out of the many guests that you have. Thank you. uh, Excellent. Thank you, Al. Good morning. Informative and entertaining. You know, yeah, I have several questions, uh, if it's okay, if I may. Uh, is it true that you experience every 45 minutes when you're up in space, like from the space station, a sunrise or sunset? Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. And that would get a little mind-boggling, don't you think, Al? If we, if every, it goes so fast, because I guess you get used to it if you're up there for six months. That is generally, that is okay. Correct. Another question was this, like, uh, you were talking about size, how things are actually small. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, when you're looking at a full moon, you could superimpose the United States, like east to west, which is about 2,800 miles, mm-hmm. and that would basically be it. So when you're looking at a moon, yeah. it's basically the size of the United States across. Is that Al, you're, uh, correct yeah. to you? Al, you're absolutely spot on. The, def- the definition in exactitude is this. I memorized this a long time ago. 2,159 miles is the diameter of the moon. It would be as if you yeah, folks are now in New York City. Right. You're in New York City. And on the other side, I'm in Phoenix right now. So I would be literally on the hmm. other edge when you're looking at a moon, 2,159 miles thereabouts, you know, give or take a little. We always have a little slack. In there, but you're absolutely one, right. Is it, true that, yeah. is it true Saturn has 82 moons and that some are bigger than Mercury and Pluto? Well, yes. And, and you're very you're spot on, my friend. I like you a lot because you ask good questions and you give a nice compliment, too. But more important than any of this stuff. Yes, Saturn has the most amazing satellite, I think, not the largest of all of them. It has Titan. And Titan is one of the satellites in the solar system, the largest one that actually has an atmosphere. See, Ganymede of Jupiter is actually larger than Mercury. So we could look at the fact that Titan is probably larger than Mercury, 82. But you know what, Al? I say there's probably way more satellites than 82 around there. We just haven't detected them all. But yeah, Al, they said 150, it, it, but 82 so far. Listen, you're the best, and I, I look forward every month to hearing you. Well, I Frank, I wish you could be on more often. <laughs> Frank, let me thank say you. this to Al. If there, you, was a prize, if there was a prize to give, he would get it. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Steve, uh, uh, Drudge, the Drudge Report has yeah. a link to an article that NASA – 
says it may study sex in space as it's crucial to long-term missions, uh, to Mars potentially. And there's a lot of jokes and a lot of talk around the 62-mile high club. Is this something that really requires study? I guess it is. Well, I think it does. And again, I can't confirm this, but talking to so many astronauts, and I'm sure as you've had many on the radio show, I never in and on air ever said to them, hey, put them on the spot. But I'm sure that that whole you know, issue has already been done in space. But that's another story. But I think it's important to study this because it's one of the many, uh, as we call it, five hazards of space. And it goes along with the study that NASA is not you know, actively seeking out you know, Dr. Ruth, like we had back uh, years ago, talking about, you know, therapy for sexual problems or, or concerns. But I think here's something that's interesting. It goes along with this. The basic five concerns about space travel, and they are the space radiation, isolation in space. That's a thing psychologically, because think of it, going to Mars would be about a nine-month journey. Mm. And if we're all cramped into a size of a studio, let's say, or a small SUV or a little bigger than that, like a tractor trailer, I don't know how would it – I love Frank and everybody else does, but – how would we act if we were all together like that? We don't know. Then the distance from the Earth, the whole thing about the, again, going back to this isolation. Gravity fields, what about the effects of gravity on you in space, the long-term effects? They've noticed that astronaut Kelly, the brother of the senator here in Arizona, he had some difficulty coming back. What happens is bones, and they shrink, I guess, as we go into gravity, or weightlessness. And then the whole probably, problem excuse me, of closed hostile environments where you're stuck inside of something, let's say it's a radiation-powered spacecraft, you know, we have to come up with this. But the sex thing, I think it's about time, but I think it's already been done, but we're not going to get a confirmation, I don't think, anytime soon. Interesting. Leo is in Manhattan. Leo, hello. Good morning, Frank and Steve. Uh, Good morning. I have a down-to-earth question. Out of the six missions was brought to the Earth about plus-minus 900 pounds of, of material, which I assume is a property of NASA. Yes. Uh, I have a two-part question. One, uh, any of the 12 astronauts was given or uh, allowed to take home a piece of, of moon as a souvenir and put it on the table as a conversation uh, piece? And the second well, part of the question yes. is, uh, was there ever any of the material uh, put for sale to public, some you know auction for charity or, or something like that? Leo, you asked some great questions. As far as I know, and I've talked to a lot of these astronauts, some that are living and some that are not, and maybe, Frank, you've had them on your show and other people out there. I'm sure I've even met them. I do not know. There are about 800 and some pounds of lunar rocks that were actually collected. That, that's almost like, I think it was 834 pounds, but not the split hairs. But I don't think any of those rocks were ever officially given to astronauts. I know a little microscopic flex or something like that might have been. I don't know that for sure, but I can tell you one thing both Leo and Frank, there was a big investigation of some people that worked at JPL. I think they were graduate students, and allegedly they had, <clears throat> careful how I say this, stole some of the samples, and guess what? The FBI got involved in that. And, really? Oh, yeah, and wow. look it up, and they're no longer working there touching moon rocks. That is interesting. Um, you know, one story that Molly brought to my attention right before we went on air, and I wanted to run it by you before we run out of time here. Yes, sir. It says that NASA is just now opening a vacuum-sealed sample that it took from the moon 50 years ago. Why did they wait 50 years? What were they hoping to do uh, with keeping this vacuum-sealed sample sealed for half a century? 
Well, the only answer I can give, and I'm always honest, I don't really know, but the reality is common sense would say maybe they were doing some other kind of experiments on that particular sample in that closed environment in the vacuum itself. In other words, maybe they wanted to see if there was any changes and not contaminating that particular sample to the Earth's environment. But again, Frank, I'm just speculating. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, good talking to you, Frank and Steve Sky. Hey, good morning uh, there. How are you doing, Jay? Can't complain. Um, you mentioned of gravity. I've, I've found over time it's not my friend. Um. <laughs> Me neither, my friend. And now that's incredible. I say this in my Dr. Sky programs when I do it with, with, with a lot of children as, edu- as an entertainer, as we say. But a lot of times I'll say, you know, Jupiter is oblate. And they go, what's that mean? I go, well, it's rounder at the equator, <laughs> just like me. And they get the message when they see me. <laughs> um, but uh, 30 years ago, Dr. Sky, I was a volunteer fireman, and we had a local nudist colony. So they needed a volunteer to inspect the fire equipment, the nudist colony. So I was the first one to raise my hand. <laughs> and I found that gravity is not the friend of men and women. I was completely shocked. Yeah, well, it's true. And well, thank I you, Jay. Very, very profound there, Jay. No, thank I was going to answer Jay on this, uh, Frank, that in, in college I had this book, which is called Gravity, and one of the authors, if not the author, was Dr. Kip Thorne, you know, I believe the uh, Nobel laureate now, talking about gravitational waves, and I went there to Caltech to visit him, and I brought the book, and I'm honest with this audience, my friend. I got a C-plus in that, in that class in college because who the hell could understand gravity? And I asked him to sign it, and he said, why? And I said, you know what? I want to use it as a step stool. The book was as <laughs> thick as the New York white pages of the 1970s. And I said, I'd use it to have children stand on it so they can get a higher level of education. He laughed, and he said, maybe you need to take the class again. And I think <laughs> let, let me end with this, uh, if I can, Steve, before we run out of time here. If you wanted to rocket out of the solar system, whether you're a private space explorer or an entity like NASA, what's the best way to do it? Well, contrary to what most people think, a lot of spacecraft that people have been following, you find out that if, we, if they go to the Mar- planet Mars, let's say, they go and shoot it directly. No, no, no. You whip it around the Earth. Some other spacecraft, you send it inward to the solar system, to Venus, and then you sling it around Venus and shoot it out of the solar system. But by far, the most prolific way to do it, and probably not with humans on board, maybe with robots, is to sling it in toward the sun. Mm. Because get a lot of this, the Parker Solar Probe, which has just made another one of the many passes to the sun, get a lot of this, five million miles away from the sun, it has this incredible carbon, carbon, carbon heat shield on it, and it's still getting imaging. But as it cruised toward the sun, in the gravity of the sun, it would push it out at speeds, I didn't make this up, of over 400,000 miles per hour. Now that's cooking, and it's not even the speed of light, but that's fast. Mm. Steve, uh, the hour has flown by, as it always does when we're together. Thank you for the time this morning. I look forward to our next interaction. Looking forward to it. Have a good morning. Thank you. You can uh, follow the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. It seems as appropriate a time as any to quote that great legendary radio DJ, Casey Kasem, in reminding you to keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 